This is a scripture reading this morning from Second Timothy, as Kelly was noting. Second Timothy chapter one, verses one through seven. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did. When I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, recalling your tears, I long to see see you so that I will be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you, through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me through many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As a student of Ambrose Seminary, I am uh, deeply appreciative and grateful for this man's leadership over our community there. Gordon T. Smith is president and professor of systematic and spiritual theology at Ambrose University in Calgary, Alberta. He is an ordained minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance and served with the Alliance as an international worker in the Philippines. He has been the senior pastor of two congregations, Emmanuel Alliance Church and Union Church in Manila. He is the author of a number of publications, including Generation to Generation, Passing on the Faith to the Children of the Church and Called to be Saints, an Invitation to Christian Maturity. Gordon is married to Joella, and together they have two adult sons. Welcome. Thank you, Trent, and good morning. That was weak. Um, Good morning. It is good to be in your company. I take particular pleasure. I'm grateful for the opportunity. I take particular pleasure in the opportunity to bring the ministry of the word to this association, to this company today, in part, not least because many of my colleagues worship here. And so it's a privilege to be here kind of out of my kind of hat as the president and colleague there, but to be in worship with them here. But also because your pastor and many others within this community are deeply integrated with the community that is Ambrose University and supportive of what we do, and for that we are deeply grateful. One of the things that has interested me for many, many years is the question, how does the faith get passed down from one generation to the next? It interests me, of course, as a father, as you might imagine, when one becomes a father, and in my case it happened 37 plus years ago, I began to ask this question, what are my responsibilities as a father? And then I became a grandfather some 16 years ago. And that added, the, added to the question. I re- realized that I have another kind of a role as a grandfather. But I've been interested in this question not merely as a father and as a grandfather, but I've also been interested in it, as was mentioned, I've been a pastor. And as a theologian, I have often been asking the question, how does the faith get transmitted from one generation to the next? Because I've been looking at conversion narratives, including the conversion narratives of second-generation Christians. But the question became even more pointed for me when I became the president of Ambrose University some three and a half years ago, 
and came to a realization. I think I knew it on some level beforehand, but I felt it keenly when I walked in the doors, is that the majority of the students at Ambrose University are between the ages of 18 and 23. Yes, of course, we have seminary students. The average age there is in their 30s somewhere. And we have many students that are quite a bit older, indeed my peers. I sometimes greet somebody in the hallway and I assume that they're kind of a visiting prof or something and they say, oh no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going back to school and I'm having fun and I'm thinking, wow, well done. Uh, bless them at a senior transition time to go back to university, very cool. But the majority of our students are between the ages of 18 and 23 and why this matters is that I think a case could be made that these tend to be the years in which a person makes a faith decision for their own self, where they take adult responsibility for their own faith. The majority of our students have been raised in Christian homes and have been part of Christian communities such as this one. And when they come to Ambrose, as often as not, these are the years in which it's going to happen. That is, in which the faith of their parents will now become their faith. In which the faith of the faith community of the church is going to become not just the faith community, faith of the faith community, but the faith of this individual. And the question I have then, as a father, as a grandfather, as a theologian, whatever, is how does the faith get passed down from one generation to the next in our families, in our faith communities, in our churches? And how does it happen in a place like Ambrose University? And how can we be supportive of communities of, learn, of communities of faith such as Skyview or of families? How can we be partners with them in passing on the faith from one generation to the next? And this is so terribly important. I'm struck, for example, by the words of Psalm 78 that speaks indeed of how we look back to our ancestors and pass on the faith to our children and then this intriguing line, even to those as yet unborn, that the church by its very nature is an intergenerational community and families by their very nature are intergenerational as one generation raises and passes on the faith from one generation to the next and we ask the question, how does this happen? And in response to that question, there's many texts of Scripture to which we could turn. We could turn to Deuteronomy 6 or 11 that talks about the role of the family, for example, and about passing on the faith as you walk along the way. We could talk about Psalm 78 that I just mentioned. We could talk about Colossians and Ephesians that talks about the church as passing on the faith to the children of the church. But the text to which I'm drawing your attention this morning that has been read for us already, and if you have your Bibles, you could turn with me there, or there's a printed version of it in your worship folder this morning, is the text of 2 Timothy chapter 1 and 2. The reason why this text interests me, at least in part, is that it speaks about both the home and the church. And I'm going to be emphasizing this point because I think there's a certain synergy between home and church when it comes to passing on the faith from one generation to the next. The reference to the home is rather easy to kind of see here in this text when he speaks in verse 5 of chapter 1. He speaks about how Paul, writing to Timothy, is confident that the faith that first resided, as he puts it, in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and now he says, I know resides in you. From Lois to Eunice to Timothy, from one generation to the next. The text catches my attention in part because it just so happens that my middle initial T stands for Timothy. And so I was named after this character, or this person, perhaps is a better way to put that, I don't know. 
Um, but whenever your name comes up kind of in the biblical text, if you've been named after a biblical character, you kind of note your parents kind of were observing something, presumably. But it also so happens that my mother's name is Eunice, which, you know, is pretty cool. If I had pulled it off that my grandmother's name was Lois, you would have been very impressed. But I, my grandmother's name is Emily, and I think that's a wonderful name, and I won't change that for anything, so it is what it is. But I can't read this text and not think of my mother and of my father and of my grandparents. I can't read this text and not look back and realize how grateful I am to my grandparents and to their parents who were faithful in the Christian faith and passed on the faith to their children and then to their children, and how grateful I am to my mother and to my father for nurturing, for cultivating the Christian faith in myself and in my siblings. And then as I read the text, I'm reminded that I now am a father, and I have a responsibility as a father to pass on the faith to my sons, and clearly of all the responsibilities that we have as parents, surely... This is perhaps as crucial, if not the most crucial of all, of what it means to be a parent. That is, a parent, you are passing on the faith from one generation to the next. And then, as I mentioned, and I feel it keenly, I'm a grandfather to six. And I'm deeply aware that the role has shifted. I'm not a father. I'm a grandfather to them. But I have a responsibility. I'm aware of, indeed, as the faith gets transmitted from one generation to the next. And as I get older, and this happens, there's a certain inevitability to this, people, I'm, I'm starting to think about those as yet unborn. And I'm realizing that within our family system, I play a part. I pass on the faith from one generation to the next, to my sons, to their children, and on to those whose yet I have yet to meet. The same principle applies within the church. That part of what it means to be a faith community, a church community, is that the church is a place where the faith is being transmitted from one generation to the next. And in the text that has been read, this may not seem as evident, but it's very present in this text. Notice, for example, how Paul speaks to Timothy. Notice the words that he uses. Notice this intriguing phrase in verse 2 of chapter 1 when he says, To Timothy, my beloved child, or my beloved son. The same thing comes up in verse 1 of chapter 2. Notice how he speaks to him. To Timothy, you then, my child. He speaks of him as his son, as his child in the Lord. And what is clear, of course, is that Paul is not his biological father. And so on what terms, on what basis is he using this term? How can he speak of him as his son? He is his spiritual mentor, elder, the older man to the younger man. So powerful a relationship that here's an older man writing to a younger man who could use the language of son, of child. And yet what is noteworthy is that when Paul speaks this way to Timothy, here too he locates himself and Timothy in a sequence from one generation to the next. Notice, for example, in verse 3 when he says, I'm grateful to God whom I worship with a clear conscience. He's speaking about his own faith as my ancestors did. Notice then, he looks back to his ancestors. He speaks about his own faith. He speaks about Timothy as his son or his child in the Lord to Timothy, my dear child. And then what does he say to Timothy? And that's when we come to 2 Timothy 2, 2. And if you've only memorized, maybe like me, if you've only memorized one verse from 2 Timothy, it's likely this one. As a young person, we've read this verse a thousand times over. The text of 2 Timothy 2, 2. Pass on the faith and trust to others who are capable of teaching others. 
That is, Paul's assuming this, that he's looking back to his ancestors. He's speaking about his own faith. He speaks about Timothy, who's his child or his son in the Lord. And then he urges Timothy to teach others who in turn are capable of teaching others. Paul's assumption is that the church is an intergenerational community where the faith is being passed down from one generation to the next. And the the thing that needs to be stressed in this regard is that this is a responsibility of the whole faith community. That is a whole faith community. We have a responsibility from one generation to the next. Within the context of the home, We cannot, as parents, say, well, you know, that religious stuff, that spiritual stuff, we're going to delegate that away. We're going to ask the church to do that. I'm stressing it's part of parental responsibility to nurture the faith of our children. As fathers, we cannot say, as is so often said within our culture, well, women are more into the religious, spiritual stuff, so we'll let them do that. I want to stress, no, it's a responsibility of mother and father to pass on the faith to the children of the church. And similarly within the church, we cannot delegate this away. I'm deeply grateful to those who have particular skills with children and with young people. Indeed, at the university, we we train people in children's ministry and in youth ministry, people who have a calling and a particular skill and a capacity to nurture the faith of children and of young people. These people are simply invaluable within the faith community. And I'm grateful for the roles that children's ministers and youth ministers had in the lives of my sons. And yet it is important to stress the following, that all of us are called. We cannot delegate this away. All of us are called within a faith community such as Skyview to pass on the faith from one generation to the next. How do we do this? How is it done? How does it happen within the context of the home? How does it happen within the context of the church or of the faith community? What role can Ambrose play in supporting churches and supporting families in passing on the faith from one generation to the next? Well, the answer is really not all that complicated. How does it happen? I'm convinced that the answer is captured by one word that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Timothy 2.2 when he says, entrust the faith to others who are capable of teaching. There's just no avoiding the word to teach. In one sense, that should not surprise us. Matthew 28, how do we make disciples? We make disciples by teaching. Indeed, no theological and spiritual tradition takes teaching more seriously than does the Judeo-Christian theological and spiritual tradition. How do we make disciples by teaching? How do we pass on the faith by teaching? How do we pass on the faith from one generation to the next? By teaching. It's by teaching that this happens. We urge one another then to teach one another and to teach one another well. Does this mean that as families we set up little, I don't know, classrooms or lecture halls in our homes? Well, I suppose, you know, give it a go. Probably won't be very fruitful for you. Uh, you know, a, a smart room, a smart class board? I, I suspect not. But let me stress this. The scriptures, Deuteronomy 6 and 11, stress the following point, that some of the most powerful teaching, in fact, perhaps the most powerful teaching, happens not in formal settings, but along the way. And we're always teaching, you might say, our children. We're always, in a sense, reflecting on the faith and reflecting on life and reflecting on the goodness and providential care of God. We teach along the way, Deuteronomy 6 and 11 suggest. And why not? As we go to the grocery store, that our conversation be seasoned with grace and informing and in a compelling way reminding our children and our young people that all of this is gift and nothing but gift. And when we gather for dinner at the end of the day, when we reflect on the course of the day and how that day has gone, 
Why would we not use the dinner table as an opportunity to reflect, to talk about the faith, and to view it as indeed an opportunity for teaching and learning? We're doing it all the time, ideally, with our children. Same thing within the church. Of course, as a faith community, as a church, if you take teaching for young people seriously, you're going to have programs that are focused on young people that are responding to their particular learning capacities and learning goals. And you've got, as I mentioned earlier, people who have particular expertise in that regard. And they didn't think I did. And so they whisked them away before I got up to speak this morning. That was meant to be very funny. Sorry, I'm, just, I'm handling it well. My ego's good. Joel loves me. Okay. Uh, but yeah, why not? Why would we not, even on a Sunday morning, recognize that different folks are at different stages of life and the teaching needs that they have? We have expertise and we have people that are going to focus there, and rightly so. But don't miss this. That some of the most powerful teaching that happens between older Christians and younger Christians, older men and women with younger men and women, some of the most powerful teaching happens not in formal settings, but along the way. The conversations over coffee, the conversations as we intersect, the conversations that you're going to have the next two Sundays in homes, those conversations that just are along the way are some of the most powerful learning, formative moments in the life of an older person with a younger person. That teaching and learning happens not just in formal settings, but in many of the conversations, indeed in all of the conversations along the way. And yet this morning, what I would like to invite you to focus your attention on is not so much teaching, however important that is. And 2 Timothy is a teaching document. Paul, through this letter in the New Testament, is teaching Timothy. And he's teaching Timothy on the assumption that Paul in turn, pardon me, that Timothy in turn will teach others. So he gives him this letter and urges him to take what he's learning and pass it on. But before Paul teaches Timothy, he does two other things that it seems to me are utterly uh, radical, revolutionary, and transformative. And I stress these two points because without them, I would suggest the teaching is of no benefit. Before he teaches Timothy, and it's a teaching document, he does two other things. Notice them, if you have your Bibles or if you have the printed text. First, before he teaches Timothy, he blesses Timothy. And second, before he teaches Timothy, he assures Timothy of his prayers. These could easily be seen as somehow secondary. Nice little warm-ups, you know, before he really gets to the meat of the letter. I'm suggesting that to the contrary, both of these are utterly crucial to the practice of teaching and thus of passing on the faith from one generation to the next. Notice first in the text how Paul blesses Timothy. There's at least three, I see three ways in which blessing happens from the older man to the younger man. First in verse 2, he says, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Interesting for me that he actually opens with a benediction. He opens with a blessing or a benediction. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I note this because typically we think of benedictions as happening at the end, not at the beginning. In fact, in the order of worship for this morning, as you'll see in your worship folder, we have a benediction. And if, it had, if you had come in and they had put benediction at the beginning... 
you would have thought, oh, well, Stuart's away, so they're kind of, you know, they're playing with the liturgy. They're playing with the order. They're going to kind of mess things up. No, we put the benediction at the end. That's where we typically put it. And typically, that's where you find it within a New Testament letter. You have at the end, Paul typically has a formal conclusion, a benediction to his readers. And my favorite is that at the end of 1 Corinthians, when he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of you. Typically, they're at the end. But why not at the beginning? And in this case, it catches my attention. In this case, he chooses to open with a benediction. And I'm going to come back to this, but let me just make this quick observation first. What I'm suggesting is that the blessing, the benediction, comes before the teaching. That Paul very explicitly is blessing before he teaches. I'll come back to that. Secondly, notice also this. He says in verse 4 when he writes to Timothy, Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that you may be filled with joy. I, this catches my attention as well because, of course, here you have an older man writing to a younger man and recalling their shared joy in each other's company, their shared delight in each other's company. Surely the reference to tears is when they had to say farewell and they longed to see each other again so that they could delight in each other's company. And indeed, one of the most powerful ways in which we bless another person is to delight in, to enjoy their company. One of the most powerful ways in which I bless my wife is to delight in, to enjoy her company, to enjoy being with her. How do I bless my sons? I bless my sons by enjoying their adult friendship, by enjoying their company. How do I delight in? Pardon me, how do I bless my grandchildren? But one of the most powerful ways in which I bless my grandchildren is by enjoying their company, by delighting in being with them. And this is not difficult. I like them. I actually like them a lot. And for what it's worth, they like me. It kind of goes both ways. I enjoy them. They enjoy me. I have four grandsons. They, I don't know if the way, it's because of the way we've been socialized, but they don't express their delight in me quite as much as my granddaughters do. My granddaughters have no reservations on this front. They think that I'm awesome. They, they do. Uh, and you may be thinking to yourself, well, Gordon, the fact that your granddaughters think you're awesome does not mean you're awesome. It just means that your granddaughters think you're awesome. And I would just observe the following, that if you were to meet my granddaughters, Karis and Kaya, ages five and seven, you would be immediately impressed that these are young women of extraordinary good judgment. Just, <laughs> just saying, I'm just saying, you know. Uh, and maybe you're thinking, maybe you're kind of a bit of a, you know, a psychosocial psychologist, you know, kind of thing. You're looking at this and saying, Gordon, don't you realize that the only reason why they like you so much is because you like them so much? Don't you realize that the only, all they're doing is mirroring your delight in them? That the reason why they like you is because you like them. Yeah. So what's your problem? <laughs> Could it be that in actual fact, that's how it works? Could it be that if I want their delight, their blessing, their honor of me, that of course the prerequisite is, the the point of departure is my blessing of them. For indeed we bless God. Why do we bless God? We bless God because he first blessed us. Why do we delight in and love God? Because he first loved us. Frankly, that's how it works. That's how it's structured. That the blessing is indeed the point of departure in the relationship. But I'm going to come to that again in a minute. And then thirdly, there's another expression of blessing in this text that should not be missed. 
And that's when Paul, writing to Timothy, says, For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. What's this all about? Here we find two men within a similar craft or occupation. Here's an older pastor writing to a younger pastor. Very distinctly, that's what's happening here. And Paul is saying to Timothy, and it's a, it's a powerful transition. Here is Paul, likely writing from prison in Rome, likely recognizing he will not be leaving prison, likely recognizing he's going to die there. Now he's passing on the torch, the baton. Now he's realizing that Paul, Timothy, is going to take it from here. And what Paul is essentially doing is blessing him in his ministry, expressed through the laying on of hands, realizing that there's been a transition in the anointing. And just as a side point here, I don't think it's possible, regardless of the work to which you are called, to do that work, to flourish in that work without the blessing of those who have gone before you, of your elders. Whether you're a carpenter, an electrician, whether you're a college professor, whatever it is, for the very nature of the ways in which generations work, we need the blessing of the generation that has gone before us. And thus, in a very real sense, it is important to stress the following, as I mentioned. Paul is going to teach Timothy. But before he teaches Timothy, he blesses Timothy. The reason why I make this point and stress this point, and I'm going to belabor this point, is because deep within our psyche, deep within our kind of understanding, is a premise, an understanding, that indeed if we're going to bless somebody else, we bless them because they fulfill our expectations. That if I'm going to bless my sons, I bless them because they receive my wisdom, they receive my teaching, they fulfill my expectations, and if they receive my teaching and fulfill my expectations, then I will bless them. Until then, all they're going to get is my furrowed brow. And you may not be able to see it from the back, but I have a quite well-developed furrowed brow. (laughs) It is not difficult for me to signal I am underwhelmed. I know all the nonverbals that go with I am underwhelmed. It is so easy, it is so easy, almost as a default mode, it is so easy for us to be disappointed with our sons, our daughters, with, our ne- with the next generation, and assume that part of how we kind of mold them and form them and fulfill our parental responsibilities is that we withdraw our blessing until they deliver on our expectations, until they receive our wisdom and in our teaching. And indeed, you could ask yourself the question, What do our young people need from us more than anything else? What do my sons need from me? What is the most important thing that my sons need from me? Well, you were supposed to call out wisdom, because obviously you're thinking, Gordon, clearly you have lots of it, buckets of that. Your sons are lucky young men. You're going to pass this wisdom on to them. And I, I, I would be sympathetic if that had been your response. And I would have said, would you please tell them? that indeed I have all this wisdom to offer to them that they seemingly are not fully tapping into. But my wife and I have this rule. uh, We just, over the Christmas, New Year's break, and I'm sure some of you did the same, who are my peers, we visit one another within family systems, and we had the opportunity to visit both of our sons and their wives and three and three, our grandchildren on both sides, to visit their homes. And we have this rule as we drive up the driveway. Jola doesn't always say the rule, but sometimes feeling because of what happened in the car that maybe she needs to remind me of the rule. It's her rule, but it's our rule. You know, that's how these things work. The rule, 
the rule goes like this. No unsolicited advice. That's the rule, yeah. So it's a, you get the drift of it. The problem with this rule, the problem with this rule is my sons, as I mentioned, are not aware of how much wisdom is available to them should they but ask. So I feel like I all through the evening, through the dinner time, and while we're gathering, I have to hint broadly at wisdom that's available to them should they but ask. If you're, if you're trying to decide how to buy and sell cars, buy and sell houses, raise children, anything. Basically, I have wisdom. Just ask. The rule is no unsolicited advice, but it's there should you but ask. No, what's the reason behind the rule? That as we get out of our car and move towards the door, we move into their home as instruments of grace and blessing. I walk in not as critic and judge to my sons, but as an instrument of blessing. Oh God, grant me this grace. I move into their home to bless them and to bless their children. Their friends drop in. I bless them. I walk through the neighborhood with my grandkids. I meet their neighbors. I'm there as an instrument of blessing. My, great, my sons, 35 and 37, it's no different now. Their greatest need from their father is to know their blessing. I would never have thought that a decade ago. I would have thought they had grown beyond it. Oh, no. I'm aware of it. I'm aware how precious, how significant it is that I can consciously bless them. That I pronounce a benediction, bless you, my son. That I delight in their company. And that as I have opportunity, I lay a hand on a back or an embrace, and I'm aware that indeed these are good men who I'm privileged to call them my sons. And the same principle applies to their wives. I bless their wives. And I remember when I met, most vividly for me, when Sarah, wife to my second son, and she was coming to meet us for the first time. Much, you know, there's much tension around these kinds of encounters. Uh, Mike is bringing his potential fiance to meet us. We, of course, are sitting firmly as judges and critics on this relationship. <laughs> no. Joella told me before she came in the door, we delight in her. I haven't met her yet. How can I delight in her? How can I affirm her? Well, because Micah chose her. So it's, an, it's the end of the discussion. She chose to bless. Joella taught me how to do it. She chose to bless before Sarah walked through the door. The same principle applied to me as a grandfather. I chose to delight. I remember the first grandchild when Jacob was born, and we drove to the hospital to meet him, and I realized I cannot love this little boy anymore. I don't love him anymore now than before I'd met him. I loved him before I even met him. He was my grandson, so I blessed him. I delighted in him. That's how it works. And indeed, one of the most powerful ways in which we exemplify the gospel is precisely in this. You may be thinking to yourself, Mr. Smith, you sound to me like you have two very fine sons. But you don't know my son. You don't know my daughter. If you knew my daughter, and I want to say, where do you get off? Do you think somehow that God blessed you when you got your act together? Or could it be that at the very heart of the gospel is that God loved us while we were yet sinners, Romans chapter 8. That in the very nature of the way in which faith is formed, blessing precedes, of course it comes after and before, and it's under, it pervades the whole. That indeed God blesses us not because we got our act together, but because he chose to love us in Christ Jesus. 
And thus, I wonder if one of the most powerful ways in which we embody the gospel is the way we live out that gospel in the lives and in the relationships we have with our children and with those who are a generation younger than ourselves. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, I, I wish that what I'm about to say were not true, but it, it just generally speaking is that in our culture, perhaps it's because of the way that we have been socialized, this is a bigger challenge for men than it is for women. Mothers, bless your heart, you'll bless anything that's got a pulse. It's, a, it's you know, full points for that. I bless you for that. If it's got a pulse, good to go. But somehow the way we've been formed as men in this culture, we assume that our gift to our sons and our daughters is the furrowed brow. It's the gift of being underwhelmed, that this is how we're going to serve them best, to live disappointed. And I think, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm aware of this. I spoke at a conference uh, a couple of years ago in Wisconsin on the theme Generation to Generation. And a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, my son has been incarcerated. He's in a penitentiary in Colorado. And she says, I go to visit him every week. Every week I go there. I go there to see him, to hold him, to hug him, to tell him I love him. But in the three and a half years that he's been there, his father has never been once. And she says, I'm dreading when he comes out. And he was due to come out in May of 2015. I'm dreading what's going to happen at that point because they'll meet each other for the first time in five years. And his father is ashamed, embarrassed, angry, wants nothing to do with his son. I grieve. What an idiot. What an idiot. I'd like to hit him, but I don't hit people. So I just, I bless people, right? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) What would have happened? What would have happened if that man had with the boy's mother, with the young man's mother, gone week after week after week and looked his son in the eye and said, you are my son. You are my son. I love you. I bless you. I will always be there for you to say those words. What would it have meant redemptively in the passing on the faith from one generation to the next? First, before Paul teaches Timothy, he blesses Timothy. What I'm suggesting is that our family systems and our churches are spaces and places, relational spaces and places, where older men and older women are blessing younger men and women. Secondly, as I mentioned, before Paul blesses Timothy, he does two, be, teaches Timothy, he does two things. One, he blesses him, and as mentioned, the second thing that he does, verse 3, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, that is, he assures him of his prayers. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure what they told you, Mr. Smith, about the length of the sermon here at Skyview Community Church, but there's a problem if the sermon goes too long, because if it goes too long, we get to the restaurants after the Christian Missionary Alliance and the Baptist and the other people do, and we have to wait long in line. So it's important that you not go too long. And on your second point on praying, we understood blessing you needed to kind of belabor that point, but on praying, it can be kind of brief, because it really, we do this. We do this. We pray for our children, and so check it off your list. You need to mention it, but it can be done quite briefly. Stick with me for just a minute. Yes, indeed, I'm going to stress the point that as a father to my sons and my grandchildren, one of the most powerful ways in which I am an instrument of grace and blessing to them is that I pray for them. And indeed, it is imperative that as parents we pray for our children and our grandchildren and for those as yet unborn, And that we pray as a faith community, older ones for younger ones, that we indeed are praying as Paul did for Timothy, that we are praying for them. But how do I know? 
that you pray for your children? How do I know that as a church, you older ones are praying for the younger ones? How do I know this? What's the evidence of this? Well, maybe you're saying afterwards over coffee, you'll tell me, I pray for my son. There, you can, there, done. Check it off your list. You can help that, I'll tell you and then you'll know. But I wonder, what is the evidence? What is the evidence that you pray for your sons and your daughters? How will I know when you tell me that you pray for your son and your daughter, how will I know that you actually do pray for your son and your daughter and not just talk about them, not just complain about them to God? Imagine the words of one man to his son. Son, I've given up on you, so now I'm passing you over to the big guy in the sky. Maybe he can fix you. And that's what prayer is? No. What's the evidence that you pray for your sons and your daughters, that you pray as older ones for the young people of this church? Could it be that the most powerful evidence that you pray for another is captured by the words of Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says to the Philippian readers, be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication, present your request to God and receive, oh, these magisterial words, the peace that transcends all understanding. Could it be that the evidence that you pray for your sons and your daughters is that you are not worried about them? That the evidence that you pray is the lack of anxiety, the lack of fretfulness. And here's where, indeed, frankly, I've picked on the men in the last point. On this point, uh, comments are often made in our social context about how in a culture of fear, we seemingly actually encourage mothers to be, to be demarcated by an anxiety that runs through the very core of their beings. That somehow, that's what it means to be a mother. To be a mother is to be like, hello, worried. That's, that's what it means to be a mother. And maybe some of you are even thinking, there are other women here who are mothers who worry about their sons and daughters, but none of them worry about their sons and daughters quite as much as I do, because like, hello, I'm a super mom. I'm worried about my kids all the time. I worry about them when I wake up in the morning. I worry about them when they're going to school. I worry about them when they're at school. I worry about them when they're on the way home. I worry about them when they're sleeping and when they're awake. That's kind of like what it is to be a mother. You're always perpetually, perpetually worried. How's that working out for you? How does it work out for you? Does it work? No. Jesus said it is absolutely useless. Indeed, it may be worse than useless. It accomplishes nothing. Could it be that one of the most powerful ways in which we live out the gospel, embody the gospel, is that we entrust, I use the word advisedly, our children to our Father in heaven and trust God to do God's work in God's time in the lives of our children. And that prayer, therefore, is an act of our deep trust in God. But could it also be that I cannot learn in a context of anxiety? I cannot receive truth and wisdom in a context of anxiety. That indeed, every time, all of you who are teachers, you know this, that when you moderate the work of a classroom, those of us that are preachers know you cannot receive new teaching, new learning, new wisdom, in the context of fear or anxiety. And therefore, the faith cannot be transmitted from one generation to the next in a culture, in a community that is demarcated by fear and anxiety, or a home. To ask a really blunt question, it's an awkward one, but what was the air that you breathed as a child? Was it the, prayer, the air of peace, of joy, of serenity, of deep confidence in God's purposes? Or was it the air of anxiety, worry, and fretfulness? And the most powerful former of the culture of a home is the homemaker, in our culture typically, not always, 
the mother. And so when I spoke on this theme last year at North Shore Alliance Church north of Vancouver, a man came up to me afterwards and he said these words. He said, my mother said to me every morning on my way to school, I'm worried about you. And he says, it never occurred to me till now that maybe that has been a weight. There's the word when he used it. A weight on my shoulders all these years. It's an oppressive weight. And thus I plead with you, mothers and fathers, to pray for your children, not so much to pray, but to cast your cares upon him who cares for you, to use the wonderful words, the phrasing of First Peter chapter 5, and to trust God to do God's work in the lives of our children in God's time. As I mentioned, I'm obviously keenly interested in the health and well-being of families. I'm keenly interested how Ambrose University and Seminary can support the work of families and of faith communities like Skyview. But also, it seems to me that one of the things we need to press for is that our churches, our faith communities, be intergenerational communities where we are not just families, but as a family, we're aware that there are older men and women who are highly invested in the young men and women that make up the community that is Skyview. I'm aware, you know, after, after a service like this, you, you kind of just kind of gravitate to your kind of your own, you know, people. Uh, it's a heterogeneous group, but when we go for coffee, suddenly all the kind of guys my age, we all kind of, we go have coffee together. And that has its place. But what I'd like to propose is this, that after worship on a Sunday, before and after, you see your friends, your colleagues, the people that you like to connect with, and say, let's do coffee on Tuesday. But that Sunday morning, be very intentionally a time in which your peripheral vision is acute, and you're watching for the ways in which you can intersect with those that are older and younger. And that as older ones, we're finding ways to be in conversation with those that are a generation younger. And you may be saying to yourself, uh, you don't understand, Mr. Smith, but the young people in our church, well, you know, they're, they're kind of weird. Um, now, so it's very awkward. And if I were to go talk to the young people and I say, you know, you need to be talking to the older folks in the church, they would say to me, well, it's awkward because they're kind of weird. That's, it goes both ways. They're weirder than we are because they don't even talk to one another. They're just texting one another. So we have our issues intergenerationally. I know it comes not easily. I feel it within the building of Ambrose University. I step out of my office and I, if I mistime it, actually it's brilliant timing, you know, it's, if I mistime it and a class just came out, the whole hallway is jammed with 20-sums, which, in case you haven't noticed, is not me. <laughs> and I think, how will I get from here to coffee and back? How, will I survive this as an introvert? Will I, should I go back to my office, wait for them to all be back in class again, and then go get my coffee? Or do I realize, no, Gordon, move into this space, however difficult or awkward socially, relationally it might be, it is utterly crucial that we move into that space. Oh, God, grant me that grace for my sons, my daughters-in-law, but also for the young people that I have an opportunity to intersect with. And to realize, I say to those of you that are younger, I'm going to make a statement that may seem over the top, but I think it can easily be proven. If you would be wise when you are older, if you're going to be a wise woman and a wise man, it will be because, by the very nature of things, wisdom is passed down from one generation to the next. If you would be a wise person, you're going to have to tap into the wisdom of those that are a generation older than yourself. 
You're going to have to be in relationship with them. You're going to have to live in their blessing and respond to their wisdom. And so one of the questions I ask of young people is who are the older men and who are the older women in your life who are the sources of blessing and wisdom for you? And for those of us that are older then to realize that the older we get, the more it behooves us as older members of the community, to be blessing and passing on wisdom and praying for one another, and that one of the most powerful ways in which we encourage one another as friends and colleagues as seniors is to say, I am praying for your son. Some of the most powerful things you can say to me. I'm invested in the life of your son, that we are invested in the lives of the children of our peers. I say it again. We are invested in the lives of the children of our peers. And for those of you that are younger thinking, well, I'm a teenager, so I don't none of this really applies to me. I had a very powerful experience a year ago, a year and a half ago, where my granddaughters went to cowboy camp. And yes, in a day of gender inclusivity, it's still called cowboy camp. Go figure. Anyways, I, I raised this with them. Why is it not called cow person camp? And that's when your granddaughters kind of roll their eyes in despair of their grandfather. So you just let it go. You know, I saw the signals from their mother. Let it go, Gordon. This is not a time to press gender inclusivity. Let it go. I decided to go and observe. While a 14-year-old young woman taught my granddaughters how to ride a horse. And my granddaughters, I come from a genetic pool, and the other grandfathers also of similar kind of genetic pool, were short. And our granddaughters are tiny. These are tiny little girls. Both of them are the smallest in their class. And they're going to learn how to ride a horse. And horses, in case you haven't noticed, are huge. So we have this huge animal, and these little girls are going to ride the horse. This struck me as a very, very bad idea. Um, I, are there little horses? <laughs> are there kind of, can we kind of do things proportionately to little people, little horses or something like that? Huge animals. And, and, we, and we go into the paddock, we go into the stables there to watch, and I'm, I'm observing Haley, 14, who's going to teach Karis and Kaya how to ride a horse. And I watched a master at work. She was stunning. Before he moved up to the horse, she assured them, both of them, you can do this. I was struck. Before we moved towards the horse, she told them, this will not be a problem. You can do this. Just another fancy way of saying blessing. They think she is a veritable god. She can do no wrong. You use the word Haley in their company. I mean, you say nice things or you're going to be in trouble with my granddaughters. <laughs> then they moved towards the horse and I, I, could hear, I could hear Haley talking to the horse who might be unsettled by these two little girls and talking to them. And I realized that what she had done is create an environment between the horse and the girls of serenity and peace and calmness. And then I went out because I just thought, I don't want to see what happens. This is, this is not wise. <laughs> And I'm outside, and out comes my granddaughter, Kaya. She's five years old. She's walking out of there with the horse behind her. I think this is entirely a bad idea. But she has utter confidence that she can ride this horse, and she did. And Haley taught her, very aware that whatever teaching happens, happens within the context of blessing, and happens within the context of a serenity, a peace that transforms all understanding. Amazing. Even at 14, she got it. And thus, I say to you, those of you that are teenagers, you're already aware of the children that are going to come out. That probably the Sunday school teachers are all upset at me already because I've gone too long. But when they come out, why not begin to think intergenerationally already? Be aware of the children in the church that you need to get down on a knee and say, you know, I've never, I've never learned your name to know the names of the children of the church. 
and to take every opportunity that God gives to bless, to assure of God's goodness, and to be an instrument by which the faith is passed down from one generation to the next. May it be so for Skyview Community Church. Amen? Amen. Thank you.